1: You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same
2: house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie never answer. The- I'm bored. Wait.
1: And welcome back to horror queers we're talking meatloaf and lemonade we're talking monotone dialogue and we're talking teeth and pubes
0: and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking doctors have the loveliest hands (laughs) so clean oh god (laughs) everyone we are discussing yorgos lanthimosas The Killing of a Sacred Deer and as we hinted last week in our outro, this is an Hmm. interesting film.
1: yes how many people will we lose how many people have seen this film and just staunchly say no i will not watch this again how many people will say oh it's that dude who makes the favorite that movie's hysterical and then they go and watch this
0: oh man i will say it's... this movie was actually my introduction to lanthimos i mm-hmm. i have seen the favorite i saw it after i saw this but th- that's okay. the only lanthimos i have any uh relationship with so i've never seen the lobster dog tooth um there's one called alps i think that he did but you also watched the great which you've talked about on the show a couple of times oh yes the the great is amazing but at the same time though like because the 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 way that he directs his actors the way characters speak in his films Mm -hmm. i feel like this and the lobster are more in sync with each other in that department because the favorite Right. I would argue it was a bit more accessible than something like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is him bridging the divide between Dogtooth and the lobster. I've seen the lobster, quite like it. Although, like some people, I do prefer the first half where it's kind of like wacky and weird. And then I don't like the back half where it gets a little more serious and retrospective. Mm -hmm. No, reflective. But um, I've I've gathered that, yeah, like Dogtooth is very confronting and indie cinema to the max and then each successive film just gets a little bit more accessible but it always has this kind of lanthimos weirdness to it
0: well and specifically with this film, so I mean, we'll talk about the acting style in this film which mm-hmm. i feel like we've been having this discussion a lot lately where it's like you got to kind of roll with what the world the film has you in and oh boy
1: yeah <laughs> this is a rocky awakening though like if you haven't experienced one of his films before you will spend the first acting on Why are they talking like this? Like You've seen Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman deliver performances that are normal, and this is not normal for them.
0: Not at all. But also, and I think this is really important to know, this... This can be called a horror film. This Mm -hmm. can be called a comedy. And I think that the comedic elements, which um, I was a little worried on a rewatch. I was like, ooh, is it maybe not as funny as I remember? And I was Mm -hmm. happy to be proven wrong. (laughs) Well, it's funny that you say that because I spend about the first half of this
1: movie thinking, Trace is a sadistic motherfucker. (laughs) Like, I can't believe he's going to come on here and try to freeway my ass through this recording saying, this movie's funny. But it actually is like it's just it's so dark and the humor is really absurd. Like I think the line delivery and the performances can often be very comedic, but then the film and the content is so dark that you find yourself laughing and then you think, oh, I'm gross. I should not be laughing
2: at this.
0: And that's the thing, right? I should not be laughing at this. The humor is pitch black. It's even Mm -hmm. macabre in most places. Because this is a movie that that has the death of children on its mind first Mm -hmm. and foremost, and... It was interesting because when I posted that I was watching this, you know, someone replied. and I, I talked about how it's simultaneously horrifying and hilarious. And right. the person that replied was like, oh, this is really interesting. I feel like I need to rewatch it because I remember it being horrifying. I don't remember any of the humor. I don't remember laughing in this movie.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: thankfully, this person was like, I'm going to rewatch it right now. And I was like, oh, man. oh. Like, hey.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: But like 10 minutes in, they, they tweeted me back and they were like, okay, 10 minutes in. And I get it. I do get it now. And I think – yeah." it's just a thing where it's like yeah because of the acting style because of the um i would even say the melodrama of the score and the shooting style hmm. it just kind of makes it to where you're like i don't know how to feel about this movie especially on a first watch
1: particularly on a first watch yeah like it is so confronting almost alienating right like yeah you you've mentioned the way it's shot a couple of times and i i saw a number of reviews that were just like are there even any medium shots in this movie? It feels like everything is either a close-up or mm-hmm. a long shot or an extreme long shot. And, it you know, we're not used to that because medium shots are establishing shots yeah. often. Like, they help us to situate the actors within a given space. So if you're really far away from them, you feel distance; They feel isolated from you. Or you're so close up that you can't really get a feel for, like, who are they, where are they, and so on. So... I think in that way, like Lanthimos is very much playing with our emotions in the shooting style.
0: Well, and this is where I'm going to actually send people back to our episode on the haunting from a couple weeks ago, because how we talked about in that film, Robert Weiss used um, unusual methods of framing and shots and editing to disorient the audience. And Mm -hmm. it's not something you always pick up on if you don't like. You know you're disoriented, but you don't know why, when in fact right. it's just because of the way things are shot or the way things are edited. And I will co-sign that that very much applies, well, to all films, but to especially <laughs> this film when it comes to how it's making you feel. Right. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so why don't we go into what this is? And again, yeah, everyone, if you haven't seen this, um have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Trace is just sending you into the deep end with no floaters. Well, so, so The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I mean, Yorgos most is a Greek man, and so The Killing of a Sacred Deer is loosely based on Iphigenia at Aulis, and this is the last of the surviving works by the playwright Euripides. And before we go further into the film, let's look at this play, shall we? Mm-hmm. So Greek theater, in case you didn't know, um, in case you didn't have to study it in school, <laughs> was interested in ethics, democracy, and the art of thinking. Many goals of Greek plays were to Pursue lofty moral themes, expand the intellect, and explore ethical issues. And what's interesting about Euripides' contributions to Greek theater is that he incorporated humor into his plays, thus breaking the rigid rules of tragedy and making it easier for new forms of drama to develop. And I think that's really key when we're thinking about, again, the humor in this film, which is essentially a tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. So Iphigenia at Aulis is set prior to the commencement of the Trojan War, um, the Trojan War being a war that was waged against the city of Troy by the Greeks after Paris of Troy took Helen from her husband Menelaus, king of Sparta, and I won't belabor this point, but just a quick recap of this play. Menelaus's brother Agamemnon was the leader of the Greek coalition. And so when Menelaus waged a war over Helen's kidnapping, Agamemnon gathers his ships and gets ready to sail for Troy at the beaches of Aulis. But unfortunately for all of them, they are unable to depart due to a strange lack of wind. And they eventually learn that that this is no mere meteorological abnormality, but rather the will of the goddess Artemis, um, the goddess of the hunt. The wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, care of children, and chastity. Look she's basically the queen okay she does it all <laughs> I used to love Greek mythology um we had to read like Edith Hamilton's mythology in high school and I loved it mm-hmm. but it's been so long that I just like I don't I, I, I even like watched but oh, God this isn't really like accurate like are you gonna say Disney's Hercules no well good point but uh, no <laughs> I, I did I did watch that a lot though but no Wolfgang Peterson's Troy oh yeah okay i know it's it's not very good and it's certainly i was gonna say historically accurate but mythologically accurate (laughs) look i'm just saying
1: i watched a lot of those historical epics like that one as well as alexander the great which of course has colin farrell because i wanted to see the dirty gay bits and there are no Dirty Gay bands in those movies. Yeah,
0: Troy explicitly doesn't have them. I think Alexander was controversial because they had them, but then removed them. There's an extended cut that you can watch. It's kind of like 54. Ah, see, and if that movie was made today, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure they'd be gay, oh. gay, gay. Yeah, sure. But anyway, Artemis is withholding the winds from, from the ocean because Agamemnon has offended her. And how did he offend her? By killing a stag or a deer that was sacred to her. Mm -hmm. So this all continues, you know, Agamemnon's like, hey, if you want to appease Artemis, you gotta ritually sacrifice and kill your eldest daughter, Iphigenia. Uh, And in spite of his horror, he actually has to seriously consider this because his assembled troops, who have been waiting on the beach and are increasingly restless, may rebel if their bloodlust is not satisfied. So... Hmm. sends a message to his wife. He's like, hey, bring my daughter over here. We're going to have her marry Achilles before we go to war. Um, I'm not going to kill her. She's Definitely not That's doing it. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they all, of course, discover the truth. And realizing that she has no hope of escape, Virginia does consent to her sacrifice over her mother's protests, declaring that she would rather die heroically, winning renown as the savior of Greece, than be dragged unwilling to the altar. So she goes to her death with her mother so distraught, she eventually murders Agamemnon. And in turn, mm-hmm. she is murdered by her son, Iphigenia's brother, who seeks revenge for his father's death. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, a Greek <laughs> tragedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's this movie is loosely based on this concept. Um, I've sure. never seen the play, so I can't speak to how it plays out like in actuality. But the basic concept is there. And I think when watching this, Even though it's set in modern times, if you kind of pretend like you're actually watching a Greek tragedy, it might be an easier pill to swallow.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. I'd love to hear from somebody if they end up adopting that suggestion and how it plays out for them.
3: Yeah,
0: 100%. I feel the exact same. So let us know. (laughs) So back to the film. Uh, A24 actually secured U.S. distribution rights in May of 2016, a full three months before principal photography even began. Wow. Filming took place in August of 2016 at the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati with more shooting taking place in the Hyde Park and Northside neighborhoods of the city joe you hinted to me before this you did not suspect that this was ohio when you were watching this movie (laughs) no i certainly
1: didn't like in my notes i referenced the scenes where we see uh barry keegan and colin farrell sitting on the hood of his car in front of this bridge i was like and there's the brooklyn bridge that they're looking out on (laughs) and it wasn't until i started to do research that it was like
0: oh no that's a different cincinnati what the fuck no no shade on Cincinnatians, but I just, you don't hear about movies being filmed in Cincinnati very often, if ever. So I, 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 maybe it was a tax break. Maybe, maybe he really liked the architecture of this hospital. Who knows?
3: Mm hmm. Yeah.
0: Um, But yeah, The Killing of a Sacred Deer had its world premiere at Cannes in May of 2017, where it won the award for best screenplay. It played a few more festivals before getting a very limited theatrical release on October 20th, 2017. It opened in four theaters and would expand over the next three weeks, with its widest release being in 238 theaters. Over its entire theatrical run, it grossed $2.3 million domestically and $4.7 million overseas for a worldwide total of $7 million. So what you're saying is this episode is going to do huge numbers for us. Basically, yes. Although I was (laughs) shocked at how many people had seen this movie when I posted about it. I was not expecting that many people to talk about it. Again, this kind of is one one of those divisive films that I think sparks a lot of conversation.
1: For sure, yeah. And I think a lot of people probably checked out The Favourite when it won a bunch of Oscars, and then they maybe went back through Lanthimos' filmography.
0: For sure. Um, But as for reception, oh, sorry, I actually want to say, I don't know what the budget for this film is. I could not find it. And, you know, it's kind of a thing where I'm like, well, you have Nicole Kidman, you have Colin Farrell, you have Mm -hmm. Alicia Silverstone for a day. Mm. I feel like at least the first two's paychecks must have been big, but maybe not because they were like, no, I want to do this film.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Kidman and Silverstone famously begged him to let them be in this movie after having seen The Lobster. So mm-hmm. I wonder if this was one of those things where they just kind of ate their usual fee so that they could be in the film.
0: And I guess Colin Farrell, he was in The Lobster, so he was like, "Yep, I'm bring me back mm-hmm. on." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, As for reception for this film, it was mostly positive. We've got a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.7 out of 10. And Letterboxd users have given it a 7.4 out of 10. I will say, so I, I did see this at Fantastic Fest. It was my introduction to Lanthimos. I adored this film i walked out Mm -hmm. i reviewed it for. well it was funny so bloody disgusting um someone had reviewed it for bloody out of the can premiere and they gave it a one out of five and they (laughs) hated it and Mm -hmm. i get it understandable reaction but it was back in the days when bloody was still allowing multiple reviews for films and different critics to throw in different opinions and i was like um i'm gonna review this because it's a five (laughs) out of five (laughs) Like, let's talk
1: about the different ranges of responses that this movie elicits in viewers, because this ain't no one star film.
0: Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, if you go to Buddy, you can go read a one star review for this movie and a five star review for this movie. There we go. Before I pass it back to you, Joe, um, I'm sorry, before I pass it to you, Joe, uh, no composer is listed on this This film mm -hmm. because the score features classical pieces by J.S. Bach, Franz Schubert and Georgi Legette. And there are also score cues by Finnish accordion player Jan Aratia. But I guess that wasn't enough to list him as a composer. So there's Mm -hmm. no composer listed on this film.
1: Yeah, which is really confusing because there's certain... Like, I, I have the sound designer listed for certain moments, but I wasn't able to figure out, like... Is that actually that person's work or am yeah. I misreading classical music? And that's what that is. Cause there's, there's like a percussive kind of train passing sound effect mm-hmm. that happens and it's really ominous and really it creates this fantastic oral kind of dissonance in the film. And I really wanted to give that person credit, but then I realized, oh, I. I don't
0: know who to give that credit to. Well, the, and the, when we're not hearing like classical pieces of music or opera or the accordion, like it's a lot of like really, it's kind of cliche by this point by 2023, but it's the strings that mm-hmm. are used in horror movie trailers a lot now. Yes. But it's constantly happening in scenes that maybe aren't even meant to be disturbing, but the score, the sound of these strings makes mm-hmm. every scene so unsettling.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so when we kind of first really get to the big moment, I'll credit that guy. But again, it could be incorrect.
0: Yeah, totally fair. Uh, Note taken.
1: All right. So we begin with an extended black screen. And yes, we're just we're hearing some piece of of music, classical music,
0: just blasting out of your TV speakers, by the way.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and, and right away, this kind of tells you this is going to be a slightly different viewing experience because we hold... On this black fucking screen so long that i thought like did my tv go to sleep (laughs) what's happening uh but we don't we actually then pull back slowly from open heart surgery before we get the title card trace i'm sure you've seen the fun fact about this
0: it's real it
1: is real Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. and colin farrell was here he was present for this
1: Hmm. Yeah, so this is real open heart surgery that Colin Farrell went to see because of course his character is a cardiovascular surgeon. But when you're looking at this, Ooh. it is grotesque. I was actually uncomfortable. And it makes it
0: almost worse to know that is a real person's heart. Well, and I think, too, because this movie isn't what I would call a violent or a gory film. Mm -mm. But this isn't a it's immediately cueing you into like, hey, y'all, this is going to upset you. And we're going to get this this really horrific visage out of the way right up front. (laughs) I mean,
1: the funny thing is, is this is just the human body in motion, right? Like, it's we're fixing up a heart. And yet. It is incredibly confronting and, yes, grotesque and upsetting. Like, well,
2: it,
0: here's the thing, though. So, you know, when we talk about the heart, we always talk about it with love and its emotion, sure. right?
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: the way it's, it's not, p- it's an organ. Well, and that's the thing. It's The way it's presented here is very medical. It's very clinical, mm-hmm. which is very much how the rest of the movie is when it comes to spoken dialogue, because these characters don't exhibit a ton of emotion in their dialogue. Right. 100%. Yes. Okay, so
1: this surgery is being performed by Dr. Stephen Murphy, Colin Farrell, and he removes his bloody scrubs. And then he and his colleague, Matthew Williams, who is played by Bill Camp with a great supporting mustache, (laughs) they go on this kind of like West Wing walk and talk tracking shot down the hospital corridor. And they're
0: just talking about watches. The, the mundane aspects of life I mean, mm-hmm. out of the way right now, right? Like th- this is again, this is the kind of dialogue, not even just the way they are speaking, but what they are talking about. This is going to be what it is for the next two hours of this film. A hundred percent. Yeah.
1: We're having frequent conversations about hair length, dress length, uh food. Random watches, different things like that. Like so often you keep waiting for one of these characters to crack and we kind of get it. We get it a little bit as mm-hmm. we move throughout the film. But for the most part, this is so mundane. It's so average. It's almost infuriating.
0: Very much. And I think I think that adds to the horror of the piece though, because I think the, the only emotion we really get to see in this film is from Colin Farrell, like towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. I I think I saw someone in a review, they they called this, like, an excellent exercise in (laughs) underreactions. Sure, (laughs)
2: yeah.
1: (laughs) One of the other things that you really notice, particularly in these opening scenes, is just how vital the camera work is to the film, right? So we've not mentioned it. This cinematographer is Nemeos Bakatakis. Yeah. Yeah, I almost got it. There yeah, you, I
0: think you did get it. <laughs>
1: okay. So this is a frequent collaborator with Lanthimos. He did Dog Took the Lobster as well as the other chilly Children Who Die movie, The Lodge.
0: Yes, I saw that and I was like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs>
1: check, 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 right? But the camera, I actually read this one uh, piece by a guy named Tanner Volts for a website called Luton Bus, and he compares the particularly the way that the camera is moving, the cinematography in this film, he compared it to The Shining and the way that Kubrick uses that camera to kind of just always be on the prowl, right? Like we're always slowly pushing in or pulling out. Here we've got these high angle tracking shots. It feels like the camera is so active, but it's pushing in and confronting these characters, which is Really interesting considering they so often will do
0: anything to avoid confrontation themselves. I th- I'm, I wouldn't have even thought about that, which is funny because you and I both just rewatched The Shining for a guest spot on another podcast. Right. And as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's dicey, right? Because it
1: feels like too often we compare things to, to either the Kubrick or yeah. The Shining more specifically. I'll admit, I spent a bunch of this time feeling like this was another Kubrick film, Eyes Wide Shut*, because of the way that Nicole Kidman is doing her performance in both films.
0: Mm, I, so I've never seen Eyes Wide Shut*, so I cannot oh, see, Trace, I know. Trace, <laughs>
1: so good. Think, that, sorry, just to clarify, that was not an exasperated like, Trace, what oh, the no, fuck? No, I know, I know, it was,
0: Trace, I cannot wait for you to watch that movie. I love Eyes Wide Shut. I think my husband really likes it, too, because I he's definitely talked about it. So it's one of those things where it's been on my list. Isn't it like three hours long? It's quite long. I mean, yeah. it's a Cooper's film. It's Cooper, so yeah, yeah. It's quite long. <laughs> but I love it because it's a sexual odyssey movie. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think it was one of those ones where my parents saw it and they were like, oh, that's really weird. It, it's just stuck in my oh, brain yeah. for a long time to where I'm like, oh, am I really going to be in the mood for that anytime soon? But one, you know, one day, one day mm-hmm. I'll watch it. Tell you what, it's a Christmas movie. We'll cover it for Christmas one year. There we go. Done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so at a diner, Stephen meets with teenager Martin, possible last name Lang, mm-hmm. and he is played by Barry Keogan. Mm-hmm. And of course... This is a fun thing if anyone has seen The Banshees of Inishirin because both of these actors are in that, and they have a sort of tenuous, challenging relationship in that film as well.
0: I'm assuming it's a bit more um, outward conflict in that one, though, because again, in this one, we're holding on to our cards for a lot of this.
1: Well... Kyogen is a bit of a village idiot in that movie, mm-hmm. so he's actually very annoying to Colin Farrell's main character, but Colin Farrell's main character is also an idiot. <laughs> it's it's ironically enough a, a bit of a dark comedy as well i i'd yeah. say it wears its comedy more on its sleeve but like there's some pretty nasty shit that goes down in that film
0: yeah no that, that that's that's still on my list i missed it in the oscar rush last year but that's i love in bruges so mm. it's like i i will be watching that eventually
1: yeah it it is a huge recommend for me it was one of the big surprises of the year oh good
0: well yeah Okay, so well, this is okay, my introduction yeah. to Kyogen um, as an actor. I, I don't think I'd ever seen him in anything before this, which, um, whew, what an introduction.
1: Okay, that is fascinating, yeah, because he was just coming off the heels of Dunkirk, the Christopher Nolan film.
0: I know, and I've heard it's really good. It's just like, uh, you have to drag me tooth and nail to go to a war movie.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, no, that's fair. And I'll confess, Dunkirk is, it's not my favorite war movie. It's not my favorite Nolan film. Uh, Kyogen is okay in it? I don't know. It's... (laughs) let's move on let's move on before i lose too many people
0: we'll go here we'll go here
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay so they're sitting on the hood of steven's car in front of the john a roebling suspension bridge and basically this is the establishment of their relationship we don't know why an older man and a teenage boy are meeting admittedly it's a public spot but why is he giving him a watch why is he comforting him like a father figure would so this is very much a question or a Prompt to take us into the film
0: yes yeah we don't know what is going on here because yeah it's clearly not his kid but it's also <laughs> like th- there's always like a borderline inappropriateness to this relationship
1: yeah so you know what? i was gonna wait but why don't we raise this now because yeah. we are covering this on horror queers and i'm curious to note do you get a sense of a kind of queerness to this relationship
0: um yeah, a little bit, but I it's, I, I think it comes out more also when we get the conversation between Farrell and his son um, mm-hmm. about the secrets later. Right. Um, But it's kind of one of those things where there's something like queer in both senses of the word about this relationship. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, I I went on the
1: hunt. I tried to see if there were any articles, and there are some people who speculate that Bob the the son son. of colin farrell is queer coded but i think that's just because of the hair cutting thing like oh he's got long hair so maybe he's a little bit more effeminate which i think is kind of grossly stereotypical but okay but you're right that this movie has both definitions i think of queerness like the way that they're speaking the way that they're reacting all of these queer actors all of these queer actors (laughs) are queer But I do think that there's a bit of a slight uncomfortable sexuality in the way that these two are comparing masculinity. Like, that's where I think the queerness comes in between Stephen and Martin. Because Martin is almost like dick measuring with Stephen to be like, oh, you know, like, let's get it on the table. Yeah. Stephen drunkenly killed martin's father because he performed surgery on him but he wasn't fully capable and as a result martin's father died and martin blames Stephen for this
0: yes yeah, so so martin's father is the sacred deer in our little um allegory here mm-hmm. and, and but this is what it's a couple weeks a couple months ago it's six months. Six months. OK. And the thing is, so we're led to believe that Stephen and Martin have been having these meetings for the entire six months since yes. this happened. Yeah. And it's only when Stephen starts being like, this is weird <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that Martin starts um, getting a bit more intense with his reach outs. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that I find really fascinating. Again,
1: I was going to kind of wait until we get into it yeah. a little bit further. But I think there's a reading to be made of this, that the sacred deer that, you know, you mentioned, mm-hmm. the whole story is kind of based on the the Greek myth. We could say yes, it's just that he wants eye for an eye. He wants revenge. He, he wants someone from Stephen's family to die right. in compensation for his father. I actually think that the original eye for an eye plan is that he's willing to accept Stephen as his his surrogate father. And it's only when Stephen starts to pull away because he says, I don't have time for you. I can't keep meeting you at the diner. I can't keep giving you things and giving you attention. I'm not going to fuck your mom, however hot Alicia Silverstone is. Yeah that's when Martin says, okay, well, fine. We're going to go into plan B. Now I'm going to kill one of your
0: family members. 100% agreed. Um, And even going into... Okay, so I want to touch on this, but we don't have to spend too much time on it because we don't have this lived experience, but... Mm-hmm. I saw, especially in reviews, um, but even in analyses after the fact, where people would refer to Lanthimos's character's way of speaking as a very autistic way of speaking. And Okay. And so I was kind of like, okay, that seems like a generalization. I don't know how, like... Right. Ugh. It makes us a little uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I tried to do some research to see, okay, well, are there any reads? Um, and I actually found that a lot of people, be they autistic or not, did identify Barry Keaton. Kyogen's character as coded autistic okay but i didn't see it really extend to the rest of the characters in the film and i Mm -hmm. thought that was really interesting but because i don't have asd autistic spectrum disorder i don't i I can't really speak to what Mm -hmm. that is so i I would actually ask any if any of our listeners do have asd and they have insight onto this or maybe they uh they relate to any of these characters in any shape way or form um let us know
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges of doing the show is that we want to speak from a kind of own voices perspective whenever possible. So we try to do research wherein people self-identify and say, like, here's my read of the thing. Mm -hmm. But if we can't find it, then we'll raise it. But we can't really unpack it when we can't always condone it.
0: Exactly. So, I mean, I've seen some of the readings, but I didn't really find anything that was very – it wasn't compelling, like, it it didn't have the support behind it that we were looking for, right? Right! Like, I saw articles that were like, I am autistic, and th- this film has a very autistic feel to it. But that was, like, that was the that's beginning it. and end of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take it just a step further. Give me some examples. Like, yeah, I, because... <laughs> anything. I, well, that's the thing, you know, it's like, uh, I guess the, an easy question you can have is, why does Lanthimos have his characters do this? What is the purpose of having his actors read their lines this way? Um, hmm let's limit it to this film specifically like what what is the reason behind that i i don't know and maybe as we go along in this episode we'll maybe come up with an answer yeah i mean the way that i've
1: always approached it the way i've always approached it the way i've approached it for the two films that sort of fall under these parameters i would say the lobster is very comparable to killing of a sacred deer Mm -hmm. the favorite less so because that that seems, as you said, quite a bit more publicly accessible in terms yeah. of its comedic approach. Yeah. But both of these films are very stilted. You know, I think I've said the word confronting half a dozen times at this point. I've read both of these as deliberately off-putting. Like I think Lanthimos finds it amusing personally but also having these characters do it this way makes us as an audience so much more cognizant of how we feel the character should be reacting. Well, and that's
0: the thing too. I mean, I did a little bit of research on autism spectrum disorder and it was, uh, the long and short of it is there are many symptoms of it and there aren't like two people with ASD that are alike because there's so many different Mm. ways to diagnose it. Okay. But a general like common recurring symptom is, you know, like uh, they typically have difficulties in verbal and nonverbal communication social interaction, um, layman's terms for like uh, how you you quote-unquote should act in normal societal situations or social situations. And one thing that was brought up in this film was specifically how people will just casually, uh, nonchalantly bring up very explicit sexual things without Mm -hmm. regard for how shocking it may come across, but also no one around them acts as if it's shocking information to
3: hear.
1: Yeah, which is why I have a difficulty assigning one person an asd reading because all of the characters in this world seem to be uniformly behaving in this
0: way right and so but that, that's where then you run into the danger of oh yeah the, the, the whole movie has an autistic feel to it okay well th- is that too much of a generalization i i don't know
1: mm-hmm. yeah and again if so to
0: what end exactly exactly so i don't have much more to add to that but i wanted to bring it up because it is something that i had seen in readings of this film
1: Okay. Well, again, if anybody has any insight, we'd love to hear from you. Yes. Okay. So, Stephen does end up giving Martin a very expensive watch. The boy thanks him with a very tight, sustained hug. And again, when... When we know that these are not familial characters, it does feel slightly kind of, wait, what is the nature of this relationship? I need to know more. Very much so.
0: And again, like it's like a hug that goes on for like a beat too long, you know? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that night at dinner, we're introduced to Stephen's wife, Anna, who is played by Nicole Kidman, as well as his youngest uh, child, Bob, who is played by Sonny Soljic, as well as his oldest child, daughter Kim, who is played by Raffi Cassidy. And yeah, like this is the definition of the film. They're having a conversation about their various hair length and how nice it is. Oh, <laughs>
0: you have lovely hair. We all have lovely hair. <laughs> hmm. This is the point where Brian walked by and just said, what are you watching? It's it's weird. And again, it's th- these mundane things they're talking about. When the Kidman's character is like, I think I'm going to make some changes at the office. I'm going to paint it, swap out the couch. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is what rich people worry about. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. yes, I, I do think that that's actually really
1: important. There is an undercurrent of class critique in this movie, I think, yeah. because part of the reason that steven is able to get away with whatever it is that he did as the movie will come to explore is because he is so fucking filthy rich yeah like Mm -hmm. they live in this mcmansion they want for nothing and that means that they get to have these kind of mundane conversations about redecorating and hair length because they don't have quote-unquote any real
0: problems and i think i i I don't know if i would call this an eat the rich movie but i got the same feelings Mm -hmm. watching this family suffer that i Mm -hmm. did watching the rich people in the menu suffer right yeah like there is something kind of quietly
1: compelling and cathartic about seeing these people get taken down a peg or two
0: a little bit and as we move along i do want to mention i think that um we maybe have a different read. Maybe we interpret some of the comedy differently, too, because I would love to know what people who are parents mm. think when they are watching this movie. Because you and I have right. been on record many times talking about <laughs> how much we love watching children die in horror movies. Um, but, you know, this is a film where, you know, yeah, a parent has to choose which of his children or wife, but, you know, it's going to be one of the kids uh, to die. And so I wonder if, again, if the comedy or comes through for parents or if the horror of it all is overwhelming.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, here's the thing. This ain't The Lodge. It isn't that kind of movie. No. It's not Goodnight Mommy to name another film by those same directors where both of those
0: films are very much like I Hate Kids, yeah. <laughs> the movie. <laughs> and these kids are actually pretty nice. I like both of these kids for the most part
1: i mean i like them both but they're also they're not great kids you know like they're they're still kind of making some shitty decisions and they're a little bit annoying and that kind of stuff but But you could say the same about their parents
0: yeah they're not gaslighting their parents into uh and trying to drive them insane and kill their dog right spoilers for several of those movies Um, But also, uh,
1: just to bring back Volt one more time in this, uh, he does make a note that just in case you didn't think that these were kind of like wealthy young millennials, even the names are out of time because what contemporary wealthy sophisticates
0: would call their children Kim and Bob? Bob is the big one for me. Like, I don't I don't know many youthful Bobs in my life. Yeah, and, and the name is actually
1: pretty apt for this kid. Like, Soljic has a very distinct face. I thought he was actually the kid who we're going to see in the Bow is Not Okay movie that's coming out.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, fun fact for anyone who's a gamer, um, Sonny Soljic actually plays Atreus in the last two God of War games.
1: Hmm, okay.
0: But yeah, like, this, this actor has a very distinct look
1: about them, right? Yes. And it's a, a bit of an old face like a wise face right mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it could also be the way that they're playing the character because you know for a lot of the time bob undergoes some pretty horrible shit in this movie but yeah. he doesn't often react to it
0: no um but important tidbit in this scene is that yes um we were talking about his hair uh steven wants bob to cut his hair and he <laughs> does not cut his hair <laughs> right yeah okay
1: So, continuing the tradition of weird things happening in this film, in the bedroom that night, Anna lies prone on the bed, and this is after she and Stephen have agreed to perform something called general anesthetic. So she basically lies flat on the bed, like she's dead, she doesn't move, and then Stephen manipulates and positions her body so that they can have sex. And I did see a number of people, frankly, I'm gonna call you out... I think a lot of vanilla
0: people saying, this is so weird. And I was like, this is a kink, folks. That's all it is. It is 100% a kink. And I mean, look, then I think to myself, well, this is kind of weird. When mm-hmm. I first watched this, sure. absolutely. But it's also, doesn't it make sense? He's a doctor. Exactly. <laughs> like, of course, he's an anesthesia play in the bedroom. Um, interesting that Kidman keeps her clothes on during this scene, because I guess mm-hmm. when she gets fully nude later that that's meant to be like an important thing like she's trying extra hard to get on his right side by being naked during this
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and again this is uh not direct correlations but very evocative of some of the things that happen in the bedroom with nicole kidman in eyes wide shut that does not surprise me at all yeah okay so we've got a high angle tracking shot that follows steven as he goes to the hospital and boop there's Martin. Uh, so Stephen asked Martin not to show up at the hospital unannounced. And he argues that it's because he could be in surgery. He could be in a consultation with a patient. He doesn't <laughs> want Martin to have to wait. I think it's also that he's saying, hey, kid – We do this on my schedule, not yours. A
0: hundred percent. He's like, don't fucking show up unannounced, stupid idiot.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think this is where you could start to make a bit of a gentle queer reading because there's a moment later on where Anna will confront Stephen and say, how long have you been seeing him? Where have you been meeting him? And it's very much a, ooh, you are having an adulterous affair with this teenage boy. And this is like, Oh, when your
0: lover inadvertently shows up at work because they're trying to embarrass you in front of work colleagues. Oh, yeah, you're a hundred. I didn't even think about that. But yes, (laughs) the the Kidman questioning even like cements that theory for me.
3: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. (laughs)
0: okay
1: so uh unfortunately this does not go unnoticed because matthew is walking by so steven has to introduce martin and he lies so he says oh this is a friend of kim's from school and martin goes along with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah cheating husband there you go there we go there we go so at home steven observes kim working on her choir scales uh you know he's I guess being a diligent dad, sure. And he's reminding Bob about the household chores again—very kind of mundane, everyday life stuff.
0: Yeah, and I—I I, I can't really speak to Raffi Cassidy's uh, singing voice very much because I don't—I don't. It's—it's don't, it's not like something super impressive. But I'm assuming she does have a very strong singing voice because she played the young Natalie Portman in Vox Lux. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I. I wasn't super
1: impressed when she sings Ellie Golding later on, but I wasn't sure if it was one of those this is a deliberate performance that's to say yeah. it's a girl who's trying to impress a boy with her singing and it's meant to evoke a teenage insecurity.
0: That's what I that, that that's absolutely the read I got because I feel like if she was meant to be an amazing singer, mm-hmm. they would have like had her sing amazingly or cast an actress who could sing amazingly.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Or dubber. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: So we move to a gala where Steven is delivering this keynote. It's boring medical shit, but Uh we are introduced to another character who will gently come back into play later on dr larry who is played by barry g Bernstein, and this is i think another example of that sexual frankness that people don't seem to react to where they're just talking about the kids and all of a sudden we just drop oh yeah kim's menstruating now and the response from this man
0: oh great (laughs) Hmm. but again they are all doctors yeah Yeah, it's it's everything about this movie is so clinical, but very clinical. This is if you're not on board with this movie, and this line happens, and you're still like, "What the fuck is going on?" Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, might be a lot. Pull the
1: core parachute out of here. Yeah, get out, get out. (laughs) (laughs) So we go on another walk with Martin, and this is where we start to get a little clarification. So we learn that Martin's father has recently died. Martin is still processing that, but he is trying to be supportive and friendly with his mother. And Stephen decides, you know what, well, why don't you come over to the house for dinner, you can meet my family. So we kind of move into that where we see Martin arriving, he's bringing flowers, he's bringing gifts, it's almost like he's a suitor, but he's also very much like scoping out the house, checking in on these people. And when you know what he's going to do later... It kind of makes you feel like, oh, is this hereditary where he's giving things to people so he can p-
0: well, practice witchcraft on them later? Like Again, like the way he speaks, he walks in and he gives her roses like uh, Stephen told me you liked orchids, but they were out. So I got you roses. I hope you like roses. And there's no punctuation. He's just like rapid fire, like going, going, mm-hmm. going. It's And you're kind of like stop talking <laughs> <laughs> but is it also just
1: because he's a teenage boy who feels slightly uncomfortable and intimidated ah
0: see though i i don't ever think he feels not inti- i think he's always in control for the majority mm. of this film okay i mean i
1: can see it because yeah. martin never truly gets ruffled even when shit hits
0: the fan later well because by your theory which i, I agree with like he, the whole time he's trying to make steven his father so in reality he shouldn't care or maybe he does maybe maybe he's doing this because he knows that he is actively trying to take their father and husband away from them and so he's Mm -hmm. doing this as like an amends of sorts
1: well i thought it was more like a fact-finding mission when he's upstairs with kim and bob you know we see this really interesting shot where bob notices that he and martin are wearing the exact same shoes Mm Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh, okay, so you you could fit right in here. You're almost like one of the other kids, but then he's sussing them out, you know, like, oh, do they smoke? Ooh, will they walk the dog with him or not? So it almost feels like he's testing the boundaries of what he can say and do with these family members. Well,
0: and again, to, to add to the awkwardness, this conversation about the armpit hair that Bob asks Ooh, boy. him. Again, yep. Yeah, it's like. Ah, this is just... just, Why are we talking about this? It's so uncomfortable. Well, but at the same time, I mean, I've talked about my issues with how I I was very late getting armpit hair as a teenager, and so I was really Mm -hmm. embarrassed by that. So it's like, oh, I I guess I buy... I buy Bob wanting to ask these questions. It's more Mm so uh, Martin going along with it, where I'm kind of like, ooh, like this... It it just feels a little inappropriate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, particularly when you think these people have just met. Yeah. But at the same time everybody kind of seems okay with it like when martin pulls up his shirt so that bob can examine his armpit hair and his chest hair and make comments about how he's apparently not as masculine as steven is mm-hmm. you also very clearly notice that kim is checking out that
0: bod very much so but like, this is a world though where like literally i know this has happened but like if someone just goes up to someone and goes hey excuse me can you please show me your penis they would just be like yeah absolutely here here's yes. a quick peek yeah exactly people do as they're told in these in these movies yeah there are no societal or like social limitations in Yeah, there's no boundaries yeah there you thank you boundaries (laughs) (laughs) kim and
1: martin proceed to go on a kind of slow motion walk and this is where she sings for him it should be romantic or we should feel like there's a connection, but, but you can't shake the feeling that something is wrong. Something is off.
0: But that's that's the slow zoom out of the camera that we get. Yes. And, this, and again, that stringy score that is constantly playing over this film. Hmm. Yeah. It it also makes us feel like voyeurs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I t- I totally get why someone would be like, "I am uncomfortable. I don't like this." Yes. 100%. Yeah. Because the whole
1: movie is just uncomfortable the whole time.
0: Right. Like honestly, if you don't like cringe comedy, this is yes. not the movie
1: for you. Yes. Which is why Brian side-eyed the TV and then just like walking. walked out. <laughs> <laughs> fucking hates it he cannot handle the cringe comedy whereas i think you and i we we look at him, we're like ooh, and then we lean in a little bit more
0: yeah i'm kind for me cringe comedy it's a little it's a little cathartic because i'm like oh i'm glad that's not me <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> which is the same reason a lot of us watch horror movies right yeah exactly
1: yeah okay so Back in the living room, the family has gathered, and Martin compliments the house about how nice it is. And he admits that he lives in a not-so-nice house in a not-so-nice neighborhood. And we will see his house later on. And it's not bad per se, but when you look at the McMansion that they have, the yard that they have... We're talking completely different class systems here.
0: Well, but this is like, it's like bodies, bodies, bodies. You're upper middle class, which <laughs> yes. they're, they're probably closer to middle class, but still. <laughs> no, because she's a doctor too, right? Like, oh, yeah.
1: So they, they are pulling in probably like 200K easy actually cardiovascular surgeon no they are super fucking rich what are we even saying upper middle class <laughs> I mean, just upper class <laughs> as anna is flossing that night she she starts to ask questions you know how do you know this boy it it's not the kind of hey is this your queer lover it's very much just that was a nice guy how do we know him why was he in our house and this is when Steven admits that Martin's father was a patient of his. So we're slowly
0: connecting these kernels of information. But he lies. He says that his father was killed instantly in a car crash.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll, I love that you mentioned the flossing too, because it's a really interesting, uh, like, kind of jarring, like, smash cut to Nicole Kidman just flossing her teeth with the yep. sound effects of the floss, like, flying out of her t- cr- teeth cracks.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, not a pleasant sound, I think, for a lot of folks. No no ASMR folks are going to get an enjoyment out of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is when Martin calls, actually, just as they're talking about him, and he's reciprocating. He wants to invite Stephen over for dinner, and he suggests that they will make meatloaf and lemonade. <laughs> so okay, here we go for dinner. So Martin and his mother, who doesn't have a character name, it's just Mother, played by Alicia Silverstone in basically one of two scenes in this movie. Again, comparisons to The Lodge.
0: I remember walking out of this and I was like, I love this movie. I Mm -hmm. would have taken 10 more scenes of Alicia Silverstone because this character is so fast. She she accomplishes so much in maybe five minutes of screen time.
1: Yep yeah and and folks if you haven't seen the lodge we keep bringing it up yes because it shares a cinematographer but also alicia silverstone is in both of these movies they use her in such a very specific concentrated way yeah it reminds you of how other movies misuse alicia silverstone because they just want her to do share horowitz stuff yes and she's really good as a dramatic actress
0: I, i i wholeheartedly agree and you know i feel like we've been seeing it's not really a a, a silver essence that we're getting but like <laughs> you, but I, i've been seeing her pop up in more things yes. she's never like the lead role she's not getting her hereditary i would love for her to get her hereditary but i like that at least starting with this i think this is the first time i really saw her like pop up again after her hi- hiatus mm-hmm. just seeing her in things it, it just it warms my heart right yeah and you're not wrong she's totally
1: fantastic in this movie so we get this kind of uncomfortable surrogate family experience where they press steven to stay so that they can watch a movie together and they're watching groundhog day so we're you know leaning a little bit into the ironic oh cyclical what comes around goes around kind of thing but martin goes to bed so he gives steven another inappropriately long hug and then he (laughs) goes off and we're left like it's a blind date where the mother just says, oh, you know, you've got really nice hands. And she scooches a little bit closer. She asks him if he wants some of her tart, which oh. is, I totally
0: think, a sexual euphemism. Okay, no, I, I'm sorry. So but after we get that, we can come back to the hand sucking bit. But like <laughs> when he stands up, her line is, I'm sorry if I made you feel awkward, but I didn't mean to. But I won't let you leave until you've tried my tart. <laughs> yeah. And it's more or less delivered just that way. Like yeah. a full, it's a locomotive line delivery that has no punctuation. Exactly. But okay, so yeah, so she's admiring his hands and you're kind of mm-hmm. like, okay, this is kind of weird. And then she just starts mouthing them. Yeah. Like yeah. And, you,
1: and a, you know what? Maybe this is a kink as well, but it is not something that you see every day. Like, I feel like I've seen the anesthetic kind of kink porn before. This
0: feels wholly unique and very uncomfortable. Well, but okay, the anesthesia just have to make sense, though, because it's in the privacy of a married couple's bedroom. This is right. a man who has just met this woman. He is married, mm-hmm. her, she is widowed. Yeah. And she just starts, like, th- this is where you're like, what the f- fuck is going on movie (laughs) Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. and you you come to realize oh this whole evening was a setup there was no oh come back over because i want to reciprocate you having me over so a tit for tat even though yes that is what we're doing martin loves to do eye for an eye in this movie but at the same time, it's very clearly a chemistry test. Hey,
0: how did you fare with my mom? Did you bone her when I went to bed? Yes. Oh, God. Um, and <laughs> This is this is the end of Alicia Silverstone. She will not appear in this movie again. No. But God damn if she doesn't make an impression. hmm Yeah, it lingers over subsequent
1: conversations with Martin, such as the next morning yeah. when Stephen goes into work and Martin is already waiting for him in his office. hmm so he's there complaining about chest pains. And then we get a little bit more information about his dad. His dad was super healthy, didn't smoke, ate healthy foods, all this stuff. He shouldn't have died in that surgery, Trace.
0: Yep. Yep. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, Stephen keeps saying I had two drinks before the surgery later in the film. Do you buy mm-hmm. that it was just two drinks? Well, it's interesting, right? Because we've glossed over it,
1: but at the gala, we learned that Stephen doesn't drink anymore, and he hasn't drunk for years. So the insinuation could be, yeah, you know what, two drinks was enough to fuck him up so badly that he killed this man during surgery, or he's been telling lies, and he's a drunk this whole time.
0: Oh, man, I'm almost tempted to believe the latter, um, especially since he really doesn't like to take the blame for anything. Because even when mm-hmm. approached about it, he's like, well, a surgeon can never kill a patient. Only man, an anesthesiologist can kill a patient.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Which I think, again, is part of that class critique, right? He's in a wealth bracket that is big enough that he can literally defer the blame. And also right. his power and his privilege as a cardiovascular surgeon means that the hospital would probably protect him during cases of negligence like this
0: yeah honestly i used to like want to be like um like an, a surgeon of some sort but looking mm-hmm. back on it, it's kind of the thing where it's like how many lawsuits do you think get filed against surgeons on a daily basis Ugh. and that just sounds so stressful
1: well as if the stress of trying to save people's lives isn't hard enough slash yeah. having to get a medical license and all those other stuff yeah yeah um i mean you have the narcissism for it
0: Uh, that's true i don't know if i should be uh uh uh, impressed or or offended by that
1: (laughs) both column a and column b no it's more like show me your hands
2: i I need to see
0: how clean they are (laughs) by all means joe suck on my hands
1: whenever you like
0: i do have clean hands (laughs) good for you
1: sir okay so martin is also feeling uh you know he could be having a panic attack or this could all be a farce but he says that he's experiencing chest pain so he forces steven to delay all of his regular duties so that we can do a barrage of tests which of course reveal nothing but it allows martin to spend more time with steven this is where we get the scene where he wants to see his chest and armpit hair because he heard bob talking about it this
0: this is weird in a movie that is filled with weird, this is <laughs> weird. I, I think this is the scene where I'm like, well, actually, no, it really is that secret giving scene. But but, the, <laughs> but the, again, it's like, yeah, you have this teenage boy who is like, mm-hmm. hey, man, please disrobe so I can look at all the hair on your body. Yeah. And you could
1: argue, well, why does Steven submit to this? I think that this is physical manifestations of his guilt. 100%. Yeah. You know, he... He doesn't want to take public responsibility for it. He doesn't even want to admit it. But what this kid asks him to do, he will
0: do. Yeah,
3: because
0: mm-hmm. c- we don't know yet that there is. Oh, do I want to say a supernatural aspect to all this? To me, to me, like mm-hmm. what, what happens in this film, it just is. Like it's like in Greek mythology, things just happen.
1: Yeah, you. You have to be comfortable with not having answers because this movie has no interest in telling you how what happens, happens.
0: Yeah, it just is. Like, I mean, and that's where I say is. if you watch it as a Greek myth, like that might make, make it an easier pill to swallow where you won't ask those questions about why is this happening? Right. Interesting. Or how is this happening? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so it turns out that Martin is completely fine <laughs> and <laughs> we go our sort of separate ways. This is a moment where... Even though you're not entirely sure how much time has passed, you very much get the sense that a bit of time has passed because Martin is leaving increasingly frustrated voice messages for Stephen. Stephen is off hanging out with his wife and his (laughs) friends. He's going to barbecues and making sure that the fish isn't overcooked. And meanwhile, Martin is having... A nervous breakdown in this
0: diner waiting for him. This is Stalker City. Um, 100%. Oh, yeah. man, it's so anxiety-inducing. Um, But also just kind of funny. <laughs> sure, yeah. So this is when the movie takes a turn, right? Yes.
1: When when Martin can't get a hold of Steven and he feels frustrated, all of a sudden Bob wakes up the next day and can no longer use his legs. Because mm-hmm.
0: the trailer for this film is very... um mysterious yeah it doesn't give a lot of information it's like a minute and a half so it's shorter than a normal trailer i don't think Mm -hmm. i knew what this movie was when i was going into it but yeah to to say as you said it takes a turn is a bit of an understatement
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: yeah because you know All
1: of a sudden, we've got this supporting character who we've spent a couple of scenes with but hasn't made a huge impression because we've been primarily focused on Martin and Steven. And all of a sudden, now Bob becomes the central focus of the film. So his legs don't work. We rush him to the hospital. Okay. It seems like he gets a little bit better. And then we get this fantastic shot. Oh, this... The super extended long shot as Anna and Bob ride the escalator down. He's fine. And then we just hover like a bird of prey at the top of an atrium or something. And we just watch as Bob collapses and Nicole Kidman is yelling at people for help. And we just hang on it and hang on it. And it's
0: great. Yes. uh, I think this is one of my favorite shots in the movie yeah it's just oh it's so good because you're just waiting for him you're waiting for him to stop oh sure (laughs) the minute he says he's fine and we try to walk him out you're just like hmm it can't be that easy well and here's the thing though so this is also to me this is martin fucking with them because he is able to walk again for a little bit Mm -hmm. and we see later in the phone call scene he has with cam that he can let them walk again if he so desires and so even though we don't see martin in this scene this feels like martin fucking with them from like outside the building
2: Hmm.
1: interesting i never thought of that i think because we don't see martin in these scenes mm-hmm. but you're probably right because we see it later with him and that's exactly what happens
0: yeah exactly but yeah so <laughs> bob will not be walking again
1: for the rest of this movie <laughs> no it's true so we see him get an mri and then dr larry confirms that everything has come back okay we don't know what's going on so Anna and Steve rearranged their schedule, he's going to cancel surgery, she's going to stay at the hospital overnight. And meanwhile, we see Kim and Martin riding on a motorcycle without helmets. So earlier, Kim had told Stephen yes. that she had gotten a ride home from Martin. And he said, Okay, we'll just make sure that you're always wearing a helmet. That's what I want. And she said, Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. obviously, I, I borrowed Martin's helmet. And here we see them riding son's helmet. So no helmet. <laughs> so Kim is clearly infatuated with Martin. She's lying to her parents about it. This is very traditional teen behavior, particularly right. for Hollywood films, and yet it also gives us a sense of ooh, Martin is
0: infiltrating their lives in more than one way. Well, th- that that is the thing that he only does this with him and Mm-hmm. I, i'm not saying this subplot is superfluous I, I do think it's it's just more him fucking with them but it's kind of one of those things i'm like but why i guess because i don't know like, like what why do all of this if we're just gonna lead into the whole you know paralysis eyes bleeding death thing anyway mm-hmm. well i wonder if
1: we focus on bob because he's the kind of equivalent of who martin is right like he's the other son so mm-hmm. he's a direct threat to martin Inheriting Stephen, for lack of a better term, but you know the concept of a daddy's little girl, right? You know, we we spend a bunch of time talking about how how she's menstruating, which means that she is a sexually viable woman now. So I wonder if it's like I am attacking your family on two fronts. I take out the coveted son, and then I
0: also try to fuck your daughter. Well, and it's also giving Kim false hope because she thinks up to a certain point that she's going to be fine because of her relationship with Martin. Right. Yeah, she's deluded. (laughs) Very, very deluded. Uh, once all these people start begging, I'm just like, "Ah!" (laughs) so
1: I did want to highlight, I I got to the point in my notes where I actually have his name written down. So the lead sound designer for the film is Johnny Mm Byrne. And I did see his name referenced in a couple of different reviews attributing some of these kinds of sounds to him. So the part where it isn't a recognizable orchestral composer. I think we can give Byrne the credit for some of these weird sounds on the soundtrack.
0: You're probably, I mean just based on the title alone I would argue yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's effective. It's very effective.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the next day Anna and Steven discover that Martin is already in Bob's hospital room and I mean Anna doesn't have any reason to suspect anything bad, but <laughs> Martin wastes no time More or less ordering Stephen to meet him in the cafeteria, and this is when everything gets laid out, right, Trace? So we have four steps that Stephen's family will go through. Do you want to list them out?
0: Uh, You know what? Let me try this. Let me try. Okay. I'm going to try to do this. Lanthimos voice inflection. Ooh, okay. That critical moment that we both knew would come someday, here it is. The time is now. Just like you killed a member of my family, now you've got to kill a member of your family to balance things out. I can't tell you who to kill, of course. That's for you to decide. But if you don't do it, they will get sick and die. Bob will die. Kim will die. Your wife will die. They will all get sick and die. One, paralysis of the limbs. Two, refusal of food to the point of starvation. Three, bleeding from the eyes. Four, death. One, two, three, four. Don't worry, you won't get sick. you just got to stay calm. That's all. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and then he says, I hope I rush that through enough so that you can go and do the other things you need to do. Yeah, As though I... he didn't just deliver this bombshell, right?
2: I hope I
0: didn't waste too much of your time.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go. Make a decision. Who do you want to kill?
0: And again, this is uh, it's almost at the hour mark of the film. And
1: mm-hmm. this is 51 minutes.
0: Yes. Yeah, so everyone like there will be no explanation for how this happens. This nope. just is. It happens. He says. So there's no. Oh, Martin's actually a secret god. There's no. Oh, there's a secret medical reason. No, no, no. It's just happening.
1: hmm. Yeah. So I remember the first time I saw this movie after this revelation, I think as an audience member you grapple with the idea well surely there's a way out of this right (laughs) like we'll kill martin we'll break the curse whatever it is you know maybe we'll do an investigation find out somebody else suffered from something similar and find out how they got away with it that's a typical horror movie that's not what lanthimos is interested in doing it took me about another 15 or 20 minutes but i realized I disliked the back half of the film on a first watch because mm-hmm. it felt so nihilistic because you knew there was no getting out of this. Like, it was just a question of which of the family members was Stephen going to kill. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of boring. It's not very exciting. Where's the tension? Where's the excitement? Mm-hmm. And then I realize, oh, that's what the fucking movie is doing. Yeah. Like, it's not trying to thrill me. It's trying to just fill me with dread.
0: Well, and honestly, this is a pretty textbook example of the five stages of grief as we move through the rest of this film. Oh, I love it. But, But what do we start with? We have denial. Mm -hmm. Then we get anger Stephen go banging on Martin's door then we have Mm -hmm. bargaining all the families are trying to bargain for their lives um, be it with Stephen or with Martin Um, then I guess we have kind of depression a little bit maybe Mm -hmm. but then acceptance of the end when we have to actually uh, pull the trigger. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Okay, so Stephen returns to his family, and this is when Anna confirms that Bob is already on step two. So he is refusing to eat, and we get this really uncomfortable moment where Stephen tries to force a
0: donut in his son's mouth. Ugh, God, this is all just... <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever had, like, when you like, you know you need to eat, but you're, you have no appetite, and so even eating, like, trying to swallow it feels like you're going to vomit? Hmm... Not to this extent. I've just had it where I know I should eat, and
1: I just can't force myself to to get the effort to go over and you know find something. Nothing sounds appealing, so I just kind of keep putting it off.
0: Uh, yeah, see, a, a huge side effect of um Adderall or like stimulants of that kind um is that they suppress your appetite. So I will literally go ten hours without eating because I forget to eat because I don't feel hungry. Oof. Yeah.
1: Except I know you, and you are so detail oriented that I would imagine you should be setting
0: alarms. I do. Um, the problem is though, again, because you don't feel hungry, so I have to force feed myself uh, oh, I lunch.
1: See. Okay. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Which so what I I'll eat like a protein bar. I'll have like a multivitamin during the day, and if I can manage it, I'll like eat like a whole sandwich. Wow. I know, right? That's rough because I find
1: eating is one of the joys of living like i really enjoy eating
0: <laughs> i love food i love eating
1: <laughs> okay we also have kim trying to initiate sex with martin and when he kind of politely declines, she even declares her love for him but he still just leaves
0: um because she even mentions the stuff about bob and she he's just like don't be a drag i thought you understood
1: Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, his behavior really won 80s at this point with everybody. Now that whatever you want to call this, the curse, uh, his revenge yeah. has begun. He really doesn't make any effort to disguise his disdain for all of them.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's just all very matter of fact. It's like, yep, this mm-hmm. is the way it is. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like This is just how it is. Okay. Yeah,
1: do the thing that I've asked you to do and... It'll be over. Yeah. <laughs> you're just delaying at this point. Uh-huh. All right. So at the hospital, Anna suggests that Bob's lack of appetite might be psychosomatic. So she she wants to do more testing on him, even though nothing thus far has really come back. So she's she's saying it's in his mind. It's not in his body. We need to test that. And this is when Steven starts to get a little
0: curt. Oh, man. If you want
1: to talk about some toxic masculinity, the way that he treats Anna's opinions her abilities as a mother i mean obviously this guy's a narcissist but he's a bit of a tool so he says he doesn't need her medical opinion and he just goes ahead and performs a spinal tap instead yeah
0: i am not remotely interested in your medical opinion <laughs> Wow. Uh, Honestly, so Colin Farrell gets the most—I think him and Keoghan, like, you know, they're kind of the stars of the film. It's it's their dynamic that we're watching. But Kidman gets some really good understated moments in this movie. I think understated is the big thing. I can imagine
1: particularly, like, female-identifying viewers going into this saying— i'm annoyed or even frustrated at what anna and kim go through because they often feel very passive and responsive to other characters Mm -hmm. i do think that that's by design i'm not going to suggest it's not frustrating yeah but i think yeah there are moments where they get interesting pieces of agency or at least they they do some interesting character work but at the end of the day this is a a two man dominated film.
0: Well, it's also even, even with Kibben, like Anna eventually starts using her her womanness not as a weapon per se, but as a bargaining tool, right? Because mm-hmm. it's so not only does she you know, do more of the anesthesia play, but she's right. also like, I mean, in, in one of the funniest scenes for me, telling him, "Well, I think logically it makes the most sense to kill one of the children because <laughs> I can still have another one with
2: you."
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that is the perfect synthesis of the uncomfortable horror of this movie and its absurd
0: comedy. Oh, yeah. I mean, like when we get to that shooting scene at the end, we'll talk more about comedy. <laughs>
1: oh, boy. You are a <laughs> twisted
0: motherfucker, sir.
1: <laughs> Speaking of twisted motherfuckers, this is the point where Stephen takes a paralyzed Bob around in a wheelchair and then he tries to force him to walk. And when... His legs don't respond. Obviously, Stephen just allows him to drop on the
0: floor. Funny, okay, but again, visually, this is horrific. But visually, mm-hmm. this is still very funny,
1: right? Because you're—it's so dumb, right? It's <laughs> just like Stephen accepted your poor son. Well, and and we get this idea afterwards because when this doesn't work two or three times, Stephen sits with Bob. And he says, okay, well, we're going to play a secret game. So I'm going to tell you a secret and then you tell me a secret. And he clearly thinks he's being father of the year by confiding in like, he tells him a horrific story about familial incest, which I think people have admittedly blown up online. We'll come back to it in a moment. But uh-huh. he tells him this story in the hopes that Bob will open up and say, this is an act. This is a prank. I've just been faking <laughs> this. Yeah, this disorder. For no good reason, but this is why I'm doing it. And of course, Bob doesn't do that. But it is it is wild that a parent would think, oh, yeah, I'll just toss my child around because I'm pretty sure they're faking it.
0: Well, but that's his narcissism, right? Because he can't believe that his actions caused this to happen. hmm Well, and it's it is supernatural,
1: right? He doesn't want to believe that this is happening, so he is very firmly in denial.
0: Well, that's the thing, though. Like, it's... <sighs> I I never quite get a grasp on if this is something that normally happens in the world of the film, because Mm. it it seems more so that he is resistant to just the idea that one of them will die more so than how this is happening outside of, you know, they're looking for a medical thing to to figure this out.
1: It's tricky, right? Because there's there's a kind of not even subplot because it's so insignificant but there's a mention at a couple of different points that we're going to fly in two experts And we never even see them. We never see them perform any tests. We just learn later on that they tried and they couldn't discover anything and they're already on their way home. Mm -hmm. But it very much feels like this intersection between emotionality and how that can cloud your judgment, but also how science isn't always extremely reliable. Like science won't give you everything that you're looking for. You need
0: something that combines the two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But Going back, to yeah, this. I was gonna say. So let's come back to this. Yeah, because well, so you say you think it got blown up on social media. I think I missed this discourse. So what are you referring to? So not
1: social media because I I wasn't paying attention when this okay. film came out. But in a bunch of reviews, this scene will almost always get mentioned. And even the most kind of casual, it's you know, oh my god, he does this disgusting thing to his father. It's incestuous. I can't believe the movie wouldn't do this. I definitely read this as playful childhood experimentation. Yeah. Yes, it it is uncomfortable because we don't like to think about children and parents interacting sexually. But in my mind, this isn't a sex act. This is an act of curiosity about anatomy.
0: I am inclined to agree. And I think, was it just last week where I was talking about how I would take showers with my father when I was a toddler? Mind you, I wasn't a teenager. Um, but like bathing with my parents wasn't something that was out of the norm. And I remember bathing with my parents. And again, there's nothing sexual about it. It was not mm-hmm. incestuous. It was just a parent like bathing with, a, with their toddler. Right. Obviously in this story, uh, Stephen is a, uh, I guess about 11 or 12, I think he says he is. Yeah, preteen. Yeah. Oh, he's when he's Bob's age he had only just started masturbating he uh and ejaculated. he wasn't ejaculating full so I, I i yeah i agree with you i mean look it is a very uncomfortable scene to listen to i think actually sure. i think it's the fact that he is telling his son this that makes it more uncomfortable than mm-hmm. the story itself right now that being said is this a story about a preteen son masturbating his father yes but mm-hmm. as you said it there's nothing sexual about it it is curiosity it's sexual curiosity and of course god i thought we're gonna get so many letters um i I mean again we're not
1: condoning it i think we're just trying to unpack some of this yeah because i i did see some people who i think fairly assess this and said what's uncomfortable about this is that he's talking about a sex act to his underage son in the hopes of getting him to divulge some kind of information. Right. That's what's uncomfortable. But I definitely saw a bunch of people say, you know, like, oh, and there's talk about the, this and incest act and I'm just like, no, I think you're actually misreading the purpose of this.
0: Yeah, I agree. And also, like, because this scene in general is a transaction. And I read mm-hmm. I, I should have pulled the quote, but there was an article I read where it said 90% of the dialogue in this film, like, between two people is transactional. Right. Be it bargaining for their lives, be it trying to get a secret, be it um, uh, Anna when she's giving a handjob to that dude to get to mm-hmm. get medical files like everything everything in this movie is transactional and that's all it is there's no emotion in it at all except for the rare moments when steven gets angry right yeah
1: no that totally makes sense and particularly when you think about this is just steven saying hey i've got something why don't you give me something back because he's hoping to uncover information. Like I said that there wasn't really an investigation into how this is going on, but in a way this is Steven's clinical approach to doing that. Like maybe he can get a sense of why this prank is happening because he doesn't fully believe that there's something supernatural. Right.
0: Exactly. He's still in denial. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when this doesn't go well, uh, Steven, makes a not so thinly veiled threat that he will punish Bob by making him eat his own hair. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. gross. Gross. But again, this this comes back into play because we've been talking about Bob's hair throughout this film, and we will continue to do so later on.
0: Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes, we mm-hmm. will.
1: <laughs> okay. So he ends up falling asleep at work. Anna drops off a shirt in the morning and she assures him everything's gonna be fine. Cut to Kim at choir and she just
0: collapses. <laughs> oh, again, it's kind of because we're we're up close with her for most because we're doing Carol of the Bells here. Um, <laughs> my favorite Christmas song. Oh. Uh, but then we pull out to that long shot <laughs> yep. and watch her just fall in this Boop. sea of children. <laughs> yep, yep.
1: So, of course, then we're back at the hospital and Anna is crying on not her husband's shoulder, but Matthew's shoulder. And this is Kim now struggling to eat. So she's already into phase two.
0: Yeah. Do you feel a little cheated that Nicole Kidman doesn't lose the use of her legs in this movie? I thought we were going to get there,
1: considering that the kids seem to fall in quick succession. Mm -hmm. And we even get a notification by Martin, you know, hey, Anna, you better act quickly. I thought for sure that we were going to do that but then I wondered if maybe we start with the smallest youngest child and then we
0: move our way up so maybe it takes longer? I well, or it's just up to Martin. Maybe he's like, you know, maybe I'll wait till Bob dies and then I'll start affecting Anna. But I <laughs> I, I I love the scene when Kim is like, have you lost the use of your legs yet, mom? Are yeah. they getting numb yet? That's <laughs> <A little> rough. <laughs> So Stephen is starting to accept
1: that something is going on because he does go to Martin's house and he bangs on the door yelling that he'll fuck him and his mom just like they wanted if he doesn't answer.
0: I definitely wrote down
1: that line. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's cheeky. It's kind of fun, right? Because it, it brings mother and her <laughs> attempted sexual persuasion back into the fray. But it's also like. I mean, you and I are sticklers for semantics because we often find revelatory language. Mm-hmm. Sorry, because we often find revelations within language and dialogue. So, right. I, you know, yeah, I took note that it's saying, I'm going to fuck you and your mom. And I'm like, well, there's two
0: ways of saying that.
2: <laughs> uh,
0: and I really thought we were going to get more Silverstone in this scene, but nope, yeah, she is just, no. I guess at work. Nobody's
1: at home. No. <laughs> So this is when Stephen confesses his relationship with Martin to Anna. We get the questions, how long have you been seeing him? Where have you been meeting? And so on. And then Stephen adamantly protests that it can't be his fault because a surgeon is never responsible for killing a patient. That's an anesthesiologist. That
0: logic does not make any kind of sense. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> it's pure narcissism i think it's funny too because if i'm not mistaken matthew is an anesthesiologist right yes. so he's basically saying oh my best friend the guy whose shoulder you're crying on the guy whose dick you're gonna jack off in a couple minutes mm-hmm.
0: it's all his fault it's yeah not my fault but that's why anna goes to him later she's like you'll tell me the truth <laughs> yeah <laughs> So important to note that this
1: is actually also when the film's perspective changes. This is primarily Ben Steven's vehicle. And even though we said that Anna and Nicole Kidman don't really get a ton to do. Yeah. It does shift and it becomes mostly her film until the end.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. I mean, look, Colin Farrell, I think, is really good in this movie. Mm-hmm. I just like, it's like, oh, Nicole Kidman is doing a movie like this. Like, right. <laughs> I just want to see her be in this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. What's well, interesting too, because these actors were both in The Beguiled, which is the movie they yeah. make after this. And it's a similar kind of role where they don't quite trust each other, but they have like a sexual thing. And it's intriguing when you see like how actors have been paired together in past and future projects. Like it often seems like there's a commentary between films.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I guess it probably improved their working relationship too, but mm-hmm. um but Nicole Kidman has a bit of a different not a completely different dynamic between her and Farrell in that movie, but he's very much the um the don't wanna say weaker character in that movie. Right.
1: She's stronger, she's in control because of course he's bedridden because he's been shot and she's sort of nursing him back to health.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay.
1: So this is where Kim manages to stand briefly so that she can wave at Martin while they're talking on the phone. And this was my, oh, I should not laugh at this moment. But when oh, Bob falls out of the tries bed. and he falls <laughs> off the bed, I laughed and then caught
0: myself and felt awful. Oh, no, fuck that. No. <laughs> he literally goes, I'm going to walk to the window, too. And then we, we cut and it's just an immediate like he's just on the floor. It is. Yeah so funny but you you're right like yeah you're supposed to catch yourself and be like wait why am i laughing at this but it just mm-hmm. it's a movie where a lot of the visuals and that's where the shooting will come into play too the the visuals are so absurdly comical mm-hmm. in the face of this dire horrific situation
1: yeah yeah and of course As we said, nobody reacts the way we quote unquote would normally expect them to. Yeah. So it's not as though you get Anna rushing over to him. She kind of casually notices, oh, my son's over there on the floor.
0: So she helps him get back up and get back into bed. Yes. Like you would think she'd be like, oh my God, Bob. And she Mm -hmm. runs. Nope, nope, nope. nope. She's like, well, let me finish getting this bitch up on this bed and then I'll move over to you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is where we get a bit of a tense moment between
1: Kim and Anna. So... So Anna realizes that Kim has been talking to Martin and that it's probably developed further than she realized. So she grabs Kim's wrist really tightly and she confiscates her phone and Kim advises her
0: not to be hysterical. It's not that tragic. This is a great moment. And like, uh, Kitman doesn't really get to like, cause I'll, she just starts to take away her phone, you know, but I love the line when she's like, I'm not like your father. And I'm like, <gasps> mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> because he's we've said it repeatedly he's in denial but he's also he's not acting on it right like he's not confiding in them he's not being proactive and trying to go after martin apart from banging on his door and you really get the sense here, okay, is Anna capable of doing something more that her husband hasn't
0: been able to face? Well, because Anna and Steven are in two very different positions. There is no world, there, there's no situation in this, in here, where where Steven will die. Mm-hmm. Anna has the option of being killed. <laughs> right, that is true. <laughs> and I love watching Kibben like, navigate that in her mind as the film goes on.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So we get possibly one of the most infamous scenes from the film when Anna goes to Martin's house and he is there. So she sits down and has a talk with him. She asks why her children have to pay for Stephen's negligence. So she's firmly just kind of okay, let's say my husband killed your father. Right. Why do my kids have to suffer for this?
0: Why do I have to pay the price?
1: Yeah. And he doesn't exactly answer her, but he is eating a giant plate of spaghetti. And we get this story about how he thought he was exactly like his father, but they shared something unique in the way that they both ate spaghetti. And then he realized, oh, everybody eats spaghetti this way.
0: Okay, wait, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell you this right now, though. Yes, yes. By saying, "Oh, you stick the fork in the plate, you twirl it around, you put the spaghetti in your mouth." Yeah, that—that that is how people eat spaghetti. Mm-hmm. They don't eat it like the way that Barry Keoghan eats spaghetti in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is why this became a meme and
1: endlessly gifable, and everybody talks about it because this, in some ways makes the spaghetti an object of disgust right yes. like we get this close-up shot and it's not like the spaghetti looks bad but there's something absolutely revolting about it
0: well and it's also the sound of the fork on the plate like, I, I hate the sounds of metal scratching sl- ca- yes cutlery yeah. on, on a ceramic plate it's so ugh, it's so horrible um and we get that this entire scene
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: so one other thing that i wanted to raise and i haven't seen this it's probably out there and i just didn't find it but i do think that the way that food is used throughout the film is part of the class critique because oh yeah when anna arrives at the hospital to comfort bob she brings him a box of bougie donuts and
0: when we- <laughs> bougie donuts <laughs> yeah
1: and I think she says like there's a dozen of them, or or Stephen says like I want you to eat all of these, like all twelve of these by the time I get back, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's ridiculous. Like, why would you need that many donuts for a small child? But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So bougie donuts
0: and low class spaghetti.
1: Well, it's low class spaghetti, but also remember what we fed Stephen when he came over. It's lemonade and meatloaf. These are food of the common people, right? Mm -hmm. It's cheap. It's easy to make. It doesn't require a lot of ingredients. You can fancy it up, sure. But like what we see of what Martin is eating is very basic food in his basic not-so-nice house and his not-so-nice neighborhood. So this is him kind of saying... Are you here to offer me something better than this shit spaghetti, which is what my
0: whole life is? That's so funny. Did, did we did we know if they had recently moved into this house? Because I was trying to figure out if um, if Martin's father's death caused them to drop a class in the class system.
1: Uh, I don't know about that, but we do know that they are financially hurting because I think he said that his mother had to go back to work because they couldn't afford to pay bills.
0: Right. Okay, that might make sense. He's a doctor. They should be making some money. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. You're right. You're right.
1: But I mean, I think it's also interesting because even though they are... On the lower end of the economic scale, mm-hmm. we very clearly see that Stephen is comfortable giving him money. He gave him that really expensive watch, right? That's why we get the watch scene early. Yeah, the same one that Matthew had. <laughs> mm-hmm. So clearly, Martin doesn't actually care about the money because he probably could have asked for blackmail money, right? Like, I will spare your children oh, and yeah. your wife if you give me this money. That's not what he wants. He either wants a surrogate father. Or he wants blood for blood.
0: Well, that's what he tells Annie. He says, it's the only thing I can think of that's close to justice. Yes. And that's how you know that this is a true revenge tale. Oh, 100%. Like, this was always going to happen no matter what. Even Mm -hmm. if, like, Stephen kept hanging out with him for as long as he wanted. Because his demands would have kept getting progressively more and more... uh, demanding
1: (laughs) oh really so so you think if steven had left his family and moved in and like started fucking his mom and acting like his dad you think he still would have Mm. demanded more
0: no i apologize I, i don't think that steven was ever going to leave that so i just i think this was always an inevitable outcome okay yes but yeah, you know what? yeah, yeah. yeah. so you, you're right I, I still agree with you that yeah the, he had one of two options i just never think he I, I never thought he was going to take the 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 less killy option
1: <laughs> fair okay so yeah the experts have discovered they can't help so they are leaving we never meet them this was when anna does her jack off of matthew to try and get the file even though you already get the impression just by asking she kind of knows the answer
0: oh yeah uh Yes, I also love too because so you know he's like oh what do I get in return and she's like that thing you wanted at the barbecue earlier and I was like oh, okay, mm-hmm. um but then so we we do see her masturbating him but right. we again we have that long shot in the garage uh, outside the car where we can see her doing it mm-hmm. with the voiceover of what he's telling her which right. but that's not happening at the same time so I love yep. that we have this like timely dissonance in this scene
1: yeah and it anticipates another instance of this when kim goes on her crawl walk and we see her
0: getting simultaneously padded up oh my god the kids crawling in this movie bob. is such a funny visual <laughs> oh my god you're terrible like, no, when anna's carrying bob down the stairs to martin but then you just see kim like crawling behind her <laughs>
3: hmm
0: I mean,
1: to me, it it feels like a gentle reference to Freaks, which I know you haven't seen, but the oh, Todd Browning film.
0: Yes, yeah, but but because one of those freaks is like a it's like a big worm thing, right?
1: Well, y- yeah, like it's a it's a person who has their arms and I think no legs.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so Bob and Kim have been moved home. So I think this is the other clear identifier that we're more in Anna's perspective, because we actually leave the hospital, like we won't really go back there anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're firmly in the domestic space, which is
0: Anna's space. Well, and now we're about to have Anna get angry at Steven because she's losing her shit.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. So she very calmly and rationally outlines that he is being a ridiculous man while his kids die in the
0: next room over. I love it. So, what if your hands are beautiful? They're lifeless. You're just an incompetent man who goes on and on saying stupid things like, let's do a scan.
1: But again, you have to remember she's not raising her voice. She's
0: not yelling at them when she does this. She it's just like monotone, matter-of-fact delivery. And he's Mm -hmm. like, (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So the one
1: emotional outburst that this movie contains happens right now. He rips up the kitchen talking about, oh, maybe we can find teeth or pubes or some kind of basically he's outlining well, what do we need for this miracle cure where do we have it maybe it's in the
0: shelf no well, ripping it, it down and shit it's such a because yeah, he's like I, I don't suppose you have any you have any pubes I can have do you oh I forgot you don't have any left we don't have any of the things we need and I'm mm-hmm. like why are we commenting on her lack of pubes
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: which if we're being honest if she doesn't have them that means she's probably shaved them or had them removed with lasers and that is often a decision that is made to please men so that's Mm -hmm. back on you steven back
0: on you sir absolutely
1: so they do go to bed angry but we see steven smoking and staring out the window so it's no big surprise when we wake up the next morning to find that he has gone out and gotten martin and he has beaten the shit out of him and tied him to a chair in the billiards room
0: god i mean this is i think this is probably where this is the third act of the film but um oh man nothing about this is even particularly cathartic because as you said mm-hmm. on your first viewing you know that the, the the inevitable is going to happen yeah this is just steven wasting time and then martin literally says you're wasting time yeah he's like oh you're gonna shoot me and you're gonna say how come i only shot one person but four people are dead mm-hmm. oh i love that line oh it's so good uh well and the, the bite for a bite yes exactly so he bites
1: steven and then he bites himself to say oh look here i'm showing you what the metaphor is it's
0: even like we're even now right (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) steven still doesn't get it (laughs) he he, he is an idiot man yeah so uh
1: he very nearly shoots martin and is only stopped because anna kind of rushes in and this is when bob decides you know what He wants to be more like Steven. So he cuts his hair and he says, I don't want to be like mom. I want to be a cardiologist like you because I like the way that you do things.
0: (laughs) Okay, wait, 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 wait. We didn't mention this earlier because one of the, His chore for the house is watering The plants and so mm-hmm. he cuts His hair he's showing off to his dad and then After the conversation he goes okay I'm gonna go water the plants Now and he starts crawling as if he's gonna Go yeah. water these plants <laughs> How are you even gonna get up to the Faucet Bob? <laughs> but even like the conversation between Kim and Bob where, he, where he's like oh well mom told me I'm getting a grand piano next month so That means mm-hmm. I'm not gonna die I didn't tell you Because I didn't want you to feel bad like the sibling Stuff and this ridiculous. <laughs> (laughs) situation is so funny oh boy yeah because they're acting
1: as though everything is normal despite the fact that neither one of them can use their legs and
0: it's been like this presumably for a while yeah yeah (sighs) oh Oh, but okay but (laughs) then one of my favorite scenes in the film happens when Steven goes to their school Mm -hmm. to ask their principal which one of the kids is a better student and they're both fine I guess and then he's like well which one do would you say is better (laughs) yep because again he doesn't want to admit that he's guilty of killing martin's father
1: because he was drunk and he doesn't even want to take on the responsibility of saying okay well i guess i have to kill one of my family members he doesn't want to do it he wants someone else to make the
0: decision for him he is yep. so fucking weak like he's he, he's he's such a big tough guy but he's already been emasculated and doesn't even realize it but tracy has three times the chest and armpit hair
1: I get really uncomfortable watching Anna and the kids visit Martin in the basement, but I'm curious, do you see a religious connotation in the fact that Anna washes and kisses Martin's feet?
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's you know uh it's I don't know very like woman's. supplication, right? Yeah, but I mean there there is a biblical story though where a woman goes up and tries to, and washes Jesus's feet and like mm-hmm. all of the people the people around him are like no cuz she's like low class, maybe she she might even be a prof, a sex worker. Um mm-hmm. and they're like no, get away, get away, get away. And Jesus is like no, please. Like he like comforts her and whatever. Um so this very much seems like a a allegory of that. Which makes sense if you think about
1: the kind of supernatural implications of like well jesus could
0: do amazing feats right well and that's kind of what martin is i mean he's not jesus but he seems to have powers as if he was jesus or a deity of some kind right
1: because we're firmly into the bargaining for our live stage, right? You know, oh, Anna's yeah. doing it for her life. And Kim will do it very shortly to say, well, if you just fix my legs, we can run away together.
0: Yeah, I just think it's a little interesting that we, we pull it. And granted, maybe I'm mistaken. And there is a Greek myth that involves a woman washing someone's feet. But mm-hmm. I only know the Christian version. Uh, but I think it's interesting that we're pulling in Christian mythology into this Greek myth
1: right yeah i wonder if this is our frame of reference because we're north americans and i wonder if lanthimos is pulling from more of a greek myth because he would know it entirely possible so yeah so what we're saying is greek listeners get in touch (laughs) yes i don't even know if we have any greek listeners actually Maybe, maybe i don't know i haven't looked at our geos there we go okay so speaking of bargaining anna tries to engage steven in sex and she is a bit more proactive this time it seems like she's just gonna get on top of him and start riding but then
0: she still just lays down dead um and this is so part of the r rating for this film is for some graphic nudity and that is mm-hmm. the long shot of nicole kidman's hairless vagina right Yes, important to note, the hairlessness. She does not hey, have yeah, pubes. She, No pubes, no pubes. Um, <laughs> but okay, but this is then when she delivers this gem of a comedic line. I believe the most logical thing, no matter how harsh this may sound, is to kill a child. Because we can have another child. I still can, and you still can. And if you can't, we can try IVF. But I'm sure we can.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Just putting your kids out for the slaughter
1: it is wild i love the fact that she never says well you could kill me as a mother i'm willing to die for my children and that would allow them to grow up and live happy fulfilling lives it's like well which of the two kids do you want to kill
0: but that's again that's going into her privilege right like even though we love nicole kidman and we love her in this role like she's still a privileged rich white bitch and oh sure Mm -hmm. I, i i'm just curious again like for all my mothers out there what do you turn on anna in this moment right yeah i don't know uh, i don't know i mean wild. personally i i'm i'm endeared to her at in this moment but i i, I can wow, imagine some people are. i know <laughs> i imagine some people are like uh no 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 mother it's nicole kidman playing against type being a bit of a bitch
1: of course you love yeah. her <laughs> <laughs> let's kill our children that's fine Let's kill him if they don't run away first. Yeah. So we get this kind of dual perspective as Kim begs Martin to help her. And then when that doesn't work, we see that she has taken off down the street solely on her arm. So I love that we don't necessarily focus on this. As you said, this film isn't particularly gory. My imagination is working overtime on how meat loafy her arms and legs would look after this.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely have in all caps in my notes. LOL, when she tries to crawl away from home. <laughs> God, I can't believe you would be laughing at this. I was horrified. This is so funny. It is so oh, funny. No, <laughs> it's awful. Listeners, where's the split? Come on, how many of you? I, we'll do a we'll do a poll. <laughs> right? No, no, But you're you're right. You're right. This is awful but again the tone of the movie is so darkly comedic that i'm Mm -hmm. simultaneously horrified and finding it hilarious yes no you're absolutely right particularly when we see her illuminated in the
1: headlights of this vehicle we marvel at how far she has gotten we're horrified at the state of her pants and you know we can see that she's bleeding pretty profusely but it's also kim where did you think you were going to go? Anywhere but here. I mean, I guess so. You really cannot trust
0: your parents. No! no. <laughs> one of them has to kill one of you, and the other one wants you to die instead of her. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so Anna reveals to Stephen in the morning that she has let Martin go because she accepts that it will not make a difference to keep him tied up. Question for you. And Mm -hmm. by extension, listeners who want to write in, were you surprised that we don't try to beat Martin or even kill him? (sighs) Like, I know he said you could try to kill me and it still won't change anything. But are you surprised that we don't see them try harder?
0: Not necessarily, because I (sighs) don't. I I think maybe that is the cathartic moment. And because this movie lacks a lot of catharsis, I wasn't necessarily thinking that we were going to get that because that, that would be mm-hmm. too, like, of an easy way out if right. we did.
1: Yeah. I find by this point in the film, you know, when we discover Martin down in the basement and he's all bloodied, I remember initially thinking, oh, okay, we're going to try to beat him out of this so that we undo this curse or whatever. And then almost as quickly realize no this is inevitable this has to happen it's just a question of which of the three is going to go
0: yeah exactly exactly um but this is <laughs> again more bargaining because we have um mm-hmm. Kim who's like mom did you tell dad about that time that I yelled at you in the hospital of course I did <laughs> <laughs> but she apologizes
1: but then she follows it up by asking if Anna has started to experience any symptoms and we ch- we slap
0: another child <laughs> oh my god it slaps the fuck out of this kid I, it, again because this isn't supposed to happen a mother's not supposed to turn against her children like this and so watching anna kind of take joy in the fact of being like yeah i told your father about that shit better
2: mm-hmm. watch out <laughs>
0: <laughs> it could be you we could decide to get rid of you
1: uh so the film really begins to enter its last act because Bob has entered the fourth and final stage. He begins to bleed from his eyes and this looks as good. I would argue
0: as let the right one in a hundred percent because it's the way it's right. We just have Bob sitting in a wheelchair and we see his eyes get redder and redder and redder, which I have Mm -hmm. to assume is some digital work. I, I don't think so, but it looks, it looks flawless. It looks practical. It looks very, very good. And then, yeah, then his eyes just start bleeding. And we get kind of a tender moment between him and Steven as Steven wipes his eyes. But it's mm-hmm. also the moment where Steven realizes, oh, fuck, I got to shoot someone. We got to <laughs> act. Yeah. Yeah. We got to do something. Or or else Bob will die. Because what what did it, uh, it's hours after the eyes start bleeding is when that person will die.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We've entered kind of apocalyptic territory. You don't have long to act anymore. Mm-hmm. So Anna decides she's going to put on the black dress that Stephen really likes, and you think, "Oh, is she going?" Oh, fuck, she's going to a
0: funeral. Oh yeah, the the, the line, "Stephen, where are the children?" is chilling. Mm-hmm. And where are they? But duct
1: taped and gagged in the living room, along with her. So we've got the three of them at different vantage points around the room. Steven puts on some kind of, I think, ski mask that covers his vision. Yeah. He's got the rifle, and
0: Trace, he just starts spinning. Okay, so uh, this is horrifying. Like, uh, uh, the most drags us out as long as he can because we mm-hmm. have to go through two misses before he finally hits one of them. Yeah. But the visual of Colin Farrell just spinning, I think it's a it's a yes. wide shot. Just spinning around with this rifle is mm-hmm. so silly. <laughs> it's very silly and
1: every time he misses you just think well why can't you make a decision you know we we see them all flinch or jump every time he misses because you can tell that they're waiting to know whether or not they're going to die here but you're right the visual image of him spinning is so absurd it's so ridiculous this is all so
0: stupid. Yes. It, it, I love it. it, it. Is. <laughs> but, and even so, after the two misses, the third turn before he hits Bob, that spin seems to take forever, forever. before he pulls yeah. the trigger. And so, again, like, even going back to your first viewing here, it's like, yeah, it's not really a matter of, like, is he going to do it? It's the uh-huh. way in which it unfolds that is so like yes. tense for me.
3: hmm
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then we see, you know, we, we kind of hold on Bob. And because Bob has already been bleeding from the eyes, it's almost hard to notice that he's the one who's been shot until you see the blood start to run from under the pillowcase, which, of course, yeah, we should also note that they've basically been like guantanamo with pillowcases, yeah. so none of them have to look at him. But yeah, we see the blood seeping from under the pillowcase, and we know, of course, we Bob killed the dead. youngest
0: one. <laughs> Right? Like, in in the movie filled with taboos, why Mm -hmm. why wouldn't we kill the youngest child in the room? I mean, admittedly, he was the sickest, but uh, no, it's horrible. (laughs) That's some analogic right there. Well, he's
2: already dying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's the most sick. Let's just get rid of him. Uh, Yeah, I I love this climactic scene. But yeah, if you were expecting more closure from the Mm -hmm. film, we're not really going to get that.
1: No, because the other fun thing is that there's basically no more dialogue in this movie. So we yeah. transition to it can only be a couple of days later because Martin still has the bruises from where Stephen beat the shit out of him. But right. we're in the diner. We've got the three surviving members of the family eating silently. And we just kind of do this slow motion look at each other as Martin walks in and he's sipping water looking at them. They get up. You can tell that Kim still wants to fuck Martin, which is
0: deranged. Yeah, no, no. Kim looks very longingly at him. Anna gives like shoots him daggers. Yes, I I literally put that in my notes. Oh, good.
1: Yeah, and, and it's really, you know, I think the kind of final images that we see are just Martin and Steven kind of looking at each other as the family exits out of this diner, and that is it. That's the movie. Like, yeah. life will continue because we have reset the scales. Martin got what he wanted, he's satisfied, and they will not try to come after him and get revenge because it is done.
0: Yeah, I, I think this is the most poetic ending the movie could have had. It, it is not satisfying in the sense no. of, like like, you want Martin to get his – no, mm-hmm. um, no. but again, going with the rules of Greek mythology, an eye for an eye. Here we go. The debt has been paid. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This isn't Titus. We don't we don't get that kind of like feel good. Oh, shit. This is just, oh, OK, I guess what was promised has been delivered. And now everyone has to live with it.
0: And maybe that's a bit deflating, but it does really work for me. I, I still even on a rewatch this movie held up for me. It is still a solid five out of five.
1: Yeah, I think if you've gotten to this point in the film, it feels like the only logical way it could have ended. I don't think any other ending would have worked. Right.
0: So so this went up for you on a second viewing then?
1: It did. Yeah, I had this at about a two and a half and it
0: went up to a four.
3: Oh, look
0: at you. <laughs> it's called growth, Trace. Look it up. It, it has been about, what, five years, six years since this came out, so...
1: Yeah, because I I think I saw this at TIFF maybe when it yeah. debuted, so I would have seen it right when it came out.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, festival fever, seeing a bunch of movies, sandwiched in between a bunch of films. This is not an easy film to watch, especially mm-hmm. if you're already feeling um, fatigued.
1: <laughs> you need to process this film for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, that is Killing of a Sacred Deer. Do you have anything else you want to say about it? I I've pretty much said everything I need to say. Uh,
1: I guess the only thing that I would say is that if folks haven't tried a Lanthimos film, this is probably a bit of a rocky entry. But at the yeah. same time, if you start with the favorite, this is going to feel all the more jarring. So in some ways, I think this is the best one to go in with.
0: Do you think that, because yeah, having not seen The Lobster, even though like it seems like stylistically it's kind of on the same level, but maybe it's not yes. as macabre, so it might be an easier watch? Um... Yes, it definitely
1: has the same kind of sense of humor. Obviously, the the visual aesthetic and the line delivery is all the same as this film. It Mm -hmm. does end kind of ambiguously. That Mm. one, I think, struggles a bit more with the pacing or it feels less satisfying in a conventional sense. So I would probably still say this one.
0: Okay, no, that's totally fair. Um, well, yeah, everyone, let us know what you thought, especially if this is the first time viewing for you. I, I, We knew when we programmed this, this was going to be a bit of a controversial pick, but I'm really glad we got to discuss it and hopefully uh, introduce it to a few new people. There we go. There we go. Alright. But, uh, before we announce recovery next week, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channels to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers. Uh, if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Give us a rating and a review, ideally, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com/slash horrorqueers. We are now in April, so go sign up now and you can get 233 hours of extra content, uh, including Ooh. our new episodes this month, uh, which includes a discussion on films with make or break endings, the latest remake question mark of Children of the Corn. Tabitha. What do we think of the Children of the Corn franchise?
1: Do we like any of those corn children?
0: (laughs) Y'all, that that movie, uh, get ready. It's a disaster, but the episode is great. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The new horror comedy Renfield, the first season of Amazon Prime Swarm, and an audio commentary on Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Busy, busy month uh, before we head into May. But, uh, Joe? Yes? What are we covering next week?
1: Well, Trace, we're going to kick off the first of two weeks of vampire films. We are a little bit early for the 40th anniversary, but, uh, it seemed like a great time to revisit some bisexual vamps with Tony Scott's The Hunga. Uh
0: <sighs> So... This is a, an event for us, because this is one of the first movies we wrote about when we started our Horror Queers articles. hmm
1: Yeah, I've been eager to revisit this, because I think this is a perfect film for podcast format. Like, it was suitable for an editorial, but I'm excited to actually talk
0: about the aesthetics in more detail. 100%. And I will say, as someone who is not generally a fan of Tony Scott's aesthetic, I love this movie.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. And a great example of queer vampire sexuality in the 80s that people seem to often forget. They want to talk about, you know, Fright Night and Lost Boys and that kind of stuff. But it's like, here's Tony Scott doing it a couple
0: years earlier. The hunger was there first. <laughs> <laughs> In the 80s, at least, yeah. <laughs> in the, in the, yes, oh yes, correct, yeah. It is not the first queer vampire movie ever made. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone, all right, uh, until next week, we can cross out The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Indeed, and cross out horror queers.